China, China, China. China. I have to have my China. China, China, because China, 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 part two. Speaking of someone who gets a simple idea in their head and sticks with it, there's our president. Uh, it works, man. That's what, uh, that's how he does it, man. People, people, yeah. Uh, welcome back to the Bullshit Field of the News. My name is Cameron Riley. With me, as always, is the man who uh, famously once said to his daughter... If you're 13 and you're willing, I'll do it. Ray. Eyes here. Eyes here. I'm sorry, bear with me. I was, I was biting, sticking my face into the pillow when you were playing that screaming. Um, but I'm back now. All's good. You just watch your mouth. Show <laughs> some respect. <laughs> You're biting the pillow? Oh, there's another clip for the soundboard. You've got to stop giving me clips. I was biting the pillow. (laughs) Anyway. We're back to talk more about uh, China. Now, as I said in the last episode, in the middle of the 20th century, Russia, China, Cuba, Vietnam, North Korea, etc., were all still 100 years behind the West in terms of their... Levels of education, literacy, health care, uh, their infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And after Mao died in the mid-70s, Mao Zedong, for people who don't know, I don't want to assume that you know anything about this because I know a lot of you don't give a shit. Fucking read. Um, Sorry. The, the, the Chinese revolution, there was two parts of it. There was the two major parties, the Kuomintang created by Sun Yat-sen and eventually led by Chiang Kai-shek on one side mm-hmm. and the the Communist Party run by Mao Zedong on the other side. They were both anti-imperialist. They were both socialist. Right. They uh, had a lot in common. They disagreed over some stuff and it ended up with them going to war against each other in the 40s. Mao finally won, the Communists won. KMT uh, and, and Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan, took Taiwan, yeah. said, we're, we're the real China on this <laughs> tiny island. And, uh, and they were actually supported as such by the United Nations for decades. But, and then Mao, uh, Mao went through periods of being in complete control of China and then he was on the sidelines for a while and then he came back. And I'll get into that in a little bit more detail as we go. But in the mid to late 70s when he died, mm-hmm. Deng Xiaoping uh, ended up as the, the premier president of the country. And he realised, as I talked about in the last episode, that a country that's backwards right. can't jump straight from feudalism to socialism, that it just doesn't work, didn't work in China, didn't work in Russia, didn't work in Vietnam, Cuba, etc. Um, and it wasn't supposed to work that way. You go back, you read Marx and Engels. That wasn't the plan. The plan was slow progression. So he started to reform the economy by setting up experiments which involved loosening the controls on the market. Mm-hmm. And that, that worked. And they've slowly expanded those trials over the last 40 years. And that in, in a large way, is what has made China the largest economy in the world. Right. And if I could just give that his, his, not his backstory, but just the reason he needed or felt that that was needed was because, you know, after the Civil War, Mao's in charge, and Mao is a revolutionary. He is not an economist. He has um, some land reforms early on, which pretty much comes down to taking land from the well-to-do and giving it to the poor, and the people who owned the land previously were most times killed. There was a lot of people that were killed as this starts happening. Um, he comes up with this first five-year plan. There is some progress because they don't try very hard, but the political terror 
is, is still going on. And then you come, that comes to the second five-year plan, the Great Leap Forward, which was an unmitigated disaster. Um, it got so bad that when Mao would want to go around and take a tour of the country to see how things were going, his uh, subordinates would actually build fake mock-ups of buildings and factories and houses and drive him by really quick just so he could see and see like there was something going on. It was a complete disaster, starvation. Um, millions of people starved to death. It took them years to get over that, at the very least agriculturally. So he uh, Mao dies in 1976, like you said. And again, I'm, I'm not going to go too far, but when Deng Xiaoping takes over, he's like, you know, clearly that didn't work. We have to do something else. And so I need to look outside of what we've been taught, what's in the little red book or what I've learned from um, from Marx or from Stalin or from Lenin. So he was literally willing to experiment with anything almost like the people in Vietnam, almost like the people in Korea or whatever, because they were so desperate. So many people had died and they were struggling and they were still worried about being attacked by other countries that he had to open himself up to new possibilities. And you're right. So he opens up these experimental areas. They try things that now would never, ever have let happen. And over time, these things start to work, but they still keep a tight rein on the entire process politically. But they do allow reforms that in time, like you said, will make China the powerhouse that it is today. Anne Lee, uh, one of the books that I read this week was Anne Lee. Uh, she's a Chinese-born professor of finance and economics at New York University. Her father lost everything, her father's family lost everything mm. during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, she's the author of a book called What the U.S. Can Learn from China. And in mm. that she writes, the communists, though not seen as infallible, by the Chinese, at least have been credited with freeing China from a century of foreign imperialism, a period in their history that they view as dark, shameful, and never to be repeated. To the extent that the Chinese can feel proud of their nation's accomplishments and confident that the government can steer their progress, they prefer the current government to alternatives. Absolutely. And I think that's an important thing to understand and I'm not look. I'm not saying that uh, all 1.4 billion Chinese people feel that way, or that right. she represents them. They're not alternative views to that. But I'm sure that she, that's true for a lot of Chinese people. That whilst the the communists may not be perfect, they did two things uh, that right. you have to give them credit for. Number one, they ended uh, a century of foreign imperialism mm-hmm. and didn't let it come back in. And secondly, they have done some amazing things with the economy. Yeah. And so people go, well, you know what? On the balance of things, they're not perfect, but they've done a pretty good job uh, on those two incredibly important things. Well, now mm. I was just, just going to say real quick, just remember on the Cold War show, we talked about the North Koreans and actually the communists in South Korea, as well as the, um, the Viet Minh, who stayed during the Japanese occupation and fought, when the war is over or is about to be over, they have a lot of street cred with the people because they stayed and they fought the enemy. And again, just here, uh, this is the same thing. The, the communists are trying. They've succeeded in some things. No, they're not perfect. But at the very least, when you can get rid of the foreign invaders that have been there for hundreds of years, whether it's the the Japanese or the British or the Americans or whoever, but the point is people remember that kind of stuff and they will cut you a lot of slack because you've done something that no emperor was able to do before before you know communists so people remember that stuff and so they're willing to be more forgiving because that is obviously one of the most important things to them to to not be under the the heel of another country yeah i think it's important to understand that sense of shame i mean we all mm-hmm. know that uh, the Asian mentality, this is true, I think, in, in China and Japan, is this concept of face. Yes. This, this, I, this idea of it's sort of a combination of honour and pride, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't really translate incredibly strongly uh, in the West, although I think Americans have a lot of national pride for their own country, which is why they struggle to have an intelligent conversation about it a lot of yeah, times. Emotions um, get in the way, yeah. They, yeah, they just yeah. can't fucking deal with facts without just uh, getting angry and, and, and bitchy and sooky like a little well, baby. Oh. Well, As I keep saying to Markham, Markham keeps getting it. I say, listen, I'm sorry if you find my facts inconvenient, <laughs> but uh, 
I just deal in facts. He goes, well, you're only American. Like, listen, I just talk about facts. I'm a student of history. I talk about facts. Yeah. If you want to disagree with my facts and submit different facts, that's fine. Go ahead. If you want to challenge my interpretation of the facts, that's fine. Go ahead. But I'm just dealing with facts, yeah. and I'm sorry if my facts get you upset, yeah. but uh, that's not my problem. Yeah, well, when you and this is true for everybody, but I certainly think it's uh, Americans, uh, at least this day and age. We just, you know, you just identify yourself through through certain ways, certain ideas, certain concepts, and and one of those is certainly nationalism. That's just where we're at right now. So you're right. We it's very hard for us to have a um, rational conversation. It's very hard not to see something, even a fact, as an attack, and then so we we respond in kind. It's just it's just kind of where we're at right now, and the current political climate is not helping that. So I want to compare China to America in a military sense, and then we'll start comparing them economically as well. Because we hear a lot about China as a threat. China is, you know, again, the communists, oh, the evil communists and, uh, you know, their, their, their human rights record, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But let's look at them in terms of their military. Right. The China's, do you know China's last foreign military intervention? Do you know what it was? Um, no. Well, let me ask you the opposite question. What was America's last foreign military intervention? Last Tuesday? <laughs> you know, we're currently bombing seven different countries in the Middle East right now. But no, um, no. I cannot remember China's ever. I mean, they're, they're kind of home homebodies. When? Well, no, their, their last intervention was in Vietnam, which ended 30 years ago. Right. And the last major conflict that they were involved in was the Korean War, which ended 70 years ago. Right. The USA, like, don't get me started, constantly interfering and involved in conflicts around the world, has 800 military bases around the world to enforce its economic hegemony. I just see in the news today that the Trump administration is say, yeah, we're leaving eight and a half thousand troops in, Af- in Afghanistan, and they're always going to be there. We're yeah. never pulling out of Afghanistan. I've got like, of course, why? Yeah. Why would you? Yeah. Um, Constant so, state of you war. Know, Sorry, go that's ahead. you know, again, from a foreigner's perspective, people say, well, who who are you more scared of, China or America? I'm like, well, America, duh. I mean. <laughs> Look at look at what America's doing with their military versus what China's doing. Oh. E- easy easy decision there. Yeah, not even close. Not even close. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, Markham was going on. I got I got a post banned from the History Podcast Facebook group this week. Really? I posted a link. I posted a link. I, n- I never post in the History Podcasts group, right? But I, I, I very rarely, and I posted a link to some of our recent podcasts. Mm-hmm. And then Markham, you know, got stuck into me. He goes, oh, more anti-Americanism as usual, I see, because of something about Korea. And we end up having this conversation. It was a polite conversation, but it went yeah. on and on and on. Whoever the fucking moderator is of the History Podcast group deleted my post. Oh, anyway, as I was saying to Markham on, uh, on that post, um, you know, he was talking. He said, you don't even accept America as the leader of the free world. And I said, well, look, for a start, when you can define what the free world is, that'd be great. B, tell me when we elected America as the leader. Uh, And, you know, what what Americans struggle to understand, I think, is at least half, according to polls and surveys, at least 50% of the people around the world, depending on the survey, um, sees America as, as the greatest threat to world peace, sees America as the greatest problem, doesn't trust America. Mm-hmm. Uh, America tends to think that the rest of the world looks up to it, and that's just not the case. There are some people who do, yeah. but at, at least 50% of the world looks at you and goes, you're fucking, <laughs> you're the troublemakers, you're the global troublemakers, right. and yet you think we all look at you as John Wayne who just rode in on a white horse with two shiny six-shooters. Right. Here, take my that's daughter. Just, yeah. That's not the case. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's, it's stunningly hilarious to me that Americans, progressive Democrats, 
people who think they're progressive Democrats also think that is true. It's hysterical, man, how the propaganda has befuddled the minds of people over there. But anyway. Would, would it be fair to say that America was the shield of the free world, i.e. not communist countries, during the 50s, um, Korea during the 60s, uh, Vietnam, and yeah, at some point, maybe when the Berlin Wall falls down in 92, whatever, we don't need it, need it but who would, like, like you've made this point a billion times, who willingly gives up power? No one. Who willingly gives up an identity that has them at the center of the world, the savior of the world, and everybody looks up to you? It's just not... You know, and, and our fathers and our parents, the generation before, teaches us that, yes, we are the savior of the world. And because it's not really tested and no one is really calling it, calling us on it, that, that idea just goes on and on and on. It doesn't get more embarrassing as time goes on. Yes, because it's a little silly as each year. It's a little more silly as each year goes on. But that's what we know. That's what we were raised. And we don't want to think differently. America is not the shield to the free world, for fuck's sake. America has done what America has done what every large, powerful imperialist nation has always done. It has used its military and economic supremacy to defend its own interests. Now, if you're in one of the countries, like Australia is, where generally speaking, our interests overlap because we're all sort of white uh, British ex cons. Right. Uh, okay, you know it's worked right. out in our advantage. If you're if you're the people of Cuba so or uh, Venezuela <laughs> or Haiti or any other of one of the seventy countries that the CIA has overthrown your government, which includes Australia, by the way. Fairly good uh, money on the fact that the Americans overthrew our government here in 1975, um, wow. or, or at least involved in that uh, to, to some degree. Um, then no, it's uh, not a good thing. You're not, you, you're not uh, uh, providing us with benefits, um, and 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 oh, I could go on, but that's not that we're talking about China. Yeah, China. Right. China, 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 China. Get up in that VA, China. Now, China's growth since the economic reform began under Deng in the late... By the way, if it's Deng or it's Deng, depends. In the UK, English, it's Deng. In uh, uh, America, I think you pronounce it Deng. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Either is acceptable. Deng, Deng, yeah, Ding, Ding, Dong. Ding, Dong, <laughs> Ding, Dong, Deng. We're going to Ding, Dong, Xiaoping. Ding, Ling, Dong. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> Starting to sound like a Andy Rooney, Andy Rooney levels of racism there. Um, <clears throat> China's growth since economic reform began under Deng in the late 1970s is unprecedented in global economic history. No other country ever in history has grown as quickly for as long. According to the World Bank, more than 850 million people have been lifted out of extreme poverty in China in the last 40 years. China's poverty rate fell from 88% in 1981 to 0.7% in 2015. That should be applauded throughout the world, but I'm imagining it's not. And communists did that. Well, it's like if a communist mother got together with a hot capitalist dad, and they did it in the back seat, and she got pregnant. It's a, it's a, it's amalgamation. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So, the the government is communist, but the economy is not, which obviously is the point we've been making. But, and again, this is just something that drives me crazy. The capitalists think they're right about everything. If you're a diehard communist, you think you're right about everything, and and life shows that that's just not how it works. The best. Response: The best type of government is probably somewhere in between, or the best philosophy is somewhere in between. Take the good aspects of each one, and that's what China has done because they were practical and pragmatic, and they've made miracle. They've made economic miracles over the last forty years because they've taken the best of both worlds. But even that, they won't get credit for from the West. I like your analogy, and I think I'm going to run with that. But the the. Uh, Better version of yeah. it would be if the communist mother right. said to some hot capitalist guy, "Listen, um, uh, 
Uh, do you want to fuck me? Oh, yeah. I, you're smoking hot. I totally right. want to fuck you. Right. Sign this prenup, <laughs> uh, this agreement, <clears throat> right. which says that you have no rights to right. the offspring. Yeah. Um, yeah, claim credit. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. And once you've put your sperm right. into my vagina, right. you, you can fuck off. Get out of here. Leave me alone. Fuck me. You, you get fuck none off. of this. Yeah. Right. right. Because <clears throat> what they've done is a tightly controlled yes. experiment allowing some elements of the free market. Mm-hmm. It's not they've gone capitalist. They've, exactly. they've ex- let a capitalist come in and fuck them a little bit. <laughs> Um, but then kick them out of the bed exactly afterwards, exactly. right? Yeah. Well, not kick them out yet, but they've they've retained the rights to kick them out they whenever the they whenever they're tired, whenever they get right. bored with the fucking. Yeah. It's like <clears throat> you know what? Uh, we don't need you anymore. I just bought a big <laughs> vibrator, so you can fuck right off the rabbit. And 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 if I could just do some specifics of a point that you made earlier. So after after Mao dies and Deng Xiaoping comes in um, from his position as, I think, general secretary. Anyway, so the communist system that uh, Mao had gradually, that had built up, that was gradually dismantled. Peasants were given more um, freedom as far as what to grow, what to do with their crops, and they did. And I think you were saying this earlier. Um, First of all, this has to come. On January 1st, 1979, the United States officially recognizes the People's Republic of China. There's contact, once again, real contact between China and the West. And in the early 1980s, like you were saying earlier, there's specific special economic zones that are set up in five areas where private enterprise is allowed to come. But again, it's being monitored and maintained by the communists. In 1984, there were 14 coastal cities opened up to foreign investment. But again, the communists had their people keeping an eye on that. And in 1989, the Shanghai stock market reopened for the first time in 40 years, again, with the communists looking over it. So here's some freedom. Let your, let your, um, uh, what do you call it? Your entrepreneurism go, but, but to a certain degree, it's got to serve the state and you can't go too far with it. Again, it's the best of both worlds. And that was the basis of what we see happening in China today, the benefits. And let's talk a bit more about those benefits. So China's per capita income has increased fivefold between mm. 1990 and just 2000. Jesus. From $200 to $1,000. Then between 2000 and 2010, per capita income increased by the same rate from 1000 to 5000 which moved China into the ranks of your middle-income countries. So it's, mm. it's a unique event in world economic history. Never, never before have so many people over such a relatively short period of time increased their income by so much. China's GDP per capita in 1978 was about $1,500. By 2015... It was more than twelve thousand dollars, and I'm talking I'm talking both of those in constant PPP dollars. Right now, for comparison, in the United Kingdom, GDP per capita expressed in the same units was around twelve thousand dollars in 1953, mm-hmm. while GDP per capita at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution Damn. is estimated to have been around $3,000. So it took the United Kingdom 150 years right. to increase its GDP per capita Even by, half, yeah, by half as much, because mm-hmm. they went from 3000 to 12000 China went from two, uh, went from... 1500 in 1978 to 12,000 in in uh, 40 years. Right. It took the UK 150 years. It took the United States 240 years from approximately the year 1700 when GDP per capita was around about $1200 to 1941, which is when it reached $12,000. Jesus. So China China did in 40 years Right. What it took those countries centuries to do. It sounds to me like they almost, oh, I don't know, planned their economy. 
<laughs> well, yes, to you're right. I mean, to they, a degree, they to a degree they they even yeah. planned the the aspects of it that were free market, but and and that is a it's a serious distinction, which right. we'll we'll get into in more detail as we go. Now, by by 2013, China's economy was 25 times larger in real terms than it had been in 1978. Their share of global GDP had more than quadrupled from under 3% to 12% in that period. And along the way, it overtook a good half dozen advanced industrial countries in terms of its aggregate output and became the world's largest economy. Also became the world's largest trading economy and the second largest recipient of foreign direct investment, which is why a lot of this growth happened in the first place. Now... Of course, it's it's got a massive population, like 1.4 billion people, mm-hmm. and that means that its its rankings per capita are much lower today than more developed countries. But that's to be expected. It's only 40 years into this journey, made right. huge strides, but it still has a long ways to go. In 1980, the World Bank classified China as a low-income country, along with about 30 of the world's poorest countries. By 2013, World Bank put China in the upper-middle-income category, with a per capita income ahead of 55 countries that were classified as low-income or low-middle-income. In just over the last 15 years, China has accomplished this. They've built 118 megacities with over a million people in each, over 6 million college students graduate per year. Right. 420 million internet users, 800 million cell phone users. Jesus. I see, I've got 271 billionaires, but you had an updated number on that. The book I'm getting these from is yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. My book's seven years old. So seven years ago, they had 271 <laughs> billionaires. They've got over 800 billionaires. <laughs> High-tech exports reaching 20% of the global market, auto sales uh, reaching 18 million units a year, which makes China the world's largest automaker, yeah. uh, auto market. Sorry, uh, Number of IPO issuers uh, was uh, the largest in the world. About 46% of global IPO value was coming out of China. That was of seven years ago. Yeah. Now, of course, there are a couple of competing theories on how this happened, and I want to touch on those a little bit and go into a little bit more detail about the things that uh, Deng Xiaoping did. Mm -hmm. But before I get into that, do you want to add anything to what I just talked about? Just real quick, and I know later on we're going to go into Trump and and the trade war and stuff like that, but just to give everybody context, I'm going to give you a stat that 99% of Americans don't know, but once they hear it, they're going to go, yeah, that sounds about right, and we don't want to give it up. The United States has had the largest economy of the planet since 1871. We get out of the Civil War. We've industrialized because of the war. So basically, we've been running anything. If you go by nominal GDP, we've had the largest economy you know, since 1871. So that's, again, that's something that um, we're not going to want to give up. There, we're, we're going to assume that China has cheated. And so when you hear Fox News or Republicans or whoever attack China, they're, they're stealing secrets or they're doing whatever. I mean, that's just to be expected because that is, I literally guess, the death throes of a country passing over the first place trophy to another country. And, and it's never pretty. And I know we're going to go into that later, but I just found that absolutely fascinating. And it's just very hard to give up I guess, that identity of being number one. Yeah, they say China steals secrets. Okay, yeah, but you stole actual people to yeah. build your economy. So, yeah. But know, that was back then. Really? Now. Oh, that, yeah. that that makes a difference? That matters? Well, the, see, I So was, as long as you do it right. first, <laughs> that that's is okay. You get a pass. No, actually, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to bring this up on the previous show when we were talking about, um, or, or I think we kind of touched on that, yeah, one of the things is that China gets accused of stealing secrets. And I wanted to go, yeah, that's almost as bad as waging war on a country at least twice, stealing some of their land, making them page a hue indemnity, and killing a lot of their people, and getting the rest of them or a lot of them hooked on opium. Yeah, stealing secrets is really bad compared to that. So it, it, it's, it's just what nations do, and none of the stuff should be forgotten and, or forgiven. And China is just having its turn in the sun now. 
So the common view, uh, I think, in the West, is certainly judging by people's comments on Facebook, is that China abandoned communism and adopted capitalism in the mm. late 70s. And that is why it has had the success that it's had. But that, of course, is not how the Chinese see it. Right. According to the Communist Party, the, the official story is that the real engine of Chinese economic progress allows a certain degree of capitalism but maintains direct ownership and control of what is allowed, how much, and for yeah. how long. Absolutely. They, it's not like we have in the West, sort of laissez, kind of laissez-faire capitalism. I know we don't have complete laissez-faire capitalism. Right. In the West, we have, we have regulations, etc. but uh, basically uh, it's, it's fairly free-for-all. Free in the West, you can yeah. start a business, do whatever the fuck you want. We think that's a good thing. China, they go, no, 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 it's not doesn't have, not how it works here. Much, much more tightly controlled, right, and managed. Right. Um, the state, or at least Chinese nationals, have co ownership of a lot of foreign companies, or make sure that those companies have at least a significant representation from domestic Chinese people in them. Mm. Mm -hmm. They have had substantial indirect control of the rest of the economy and they, they, they have direct control over the state-owned banking system that uh, allocates credit to growing businesses, basically loaning out money to domestic businesses. It's not a uh, a privatized banking system like we have in the West. Mm -hmm. It's a state-controlled banking right. system. So the state decides whether or not your business is going to be good for the economy or not, and then we'll loan you money based on that. Mm. So, now, since 2013, the General Secretary of the Communist Party and the President of China is, of course, Xi Jinping. Now, how much do you know about mm -hmm. his father, Ray? I I do not know. Please tell me. Well, I think, you know, you can tell a lot about somebody by their their, their parentage. Um, mm -hmm. By the way, did you know that uh, Danny McBride, do you know who Danny McBride is? Yes. Eastbound and Down, uh, his new show, The Righteous mm -hmm. Gemstones, Vice Principals. He's from uh, Charleston, North Carolina, South Carolina, South Charleston, South Carolina, South, South Carolina, South South Carolina. Is he? And wow. I've I've always wondered, uh, like yeah. his character. Chrissy and I were talking about this the other day. Like he he's a very very intelligent, educated uh, man, and he always plays these dumb redneck characters. And we were like, right. <laughs> Chrissy said, you know, he must have known someone in Charleston. That he based these right. dumb redneck characters I don't on, and I like was like, where "This is going." Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> I immediately, I'm, I immediately you thought, can't tell, I'm but from I'm bowing. South Carolina. <laughs> I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. I've been to South Carolina since. Yeah, yeah, but 82? you grew up there the same time he grew up there. Yeah, I think he. Well, I'm glad I, think I could be somebody on the basis model. of. His characters yeah. always have yeah. a lot more hair than you do, though, so I'm not sure. Have you started watching The Righteous Gemstones yet, by the way? No. No, I have not. Oh, you're, you're going to love it. It's his new series on HBO. It just started a week or so ago. Him, John Goodman, in it, and they play – they're a family of rich evangelical yes. preachers, like super, super rich mega preachers. Yes. Oh. Looks and awesome. they're all just awesome. they're all just fucking corrupt and venal and horrible yeah. people. But running these big mega churches, talking about Jesus, it's great. Oh, so I can't good. Wait to see that. So good. Did you Check see it out. Any what I put on Facebook? Um, someone's made a movie about uh, Marcel Fonseca, Meryl Streep. I do with Gary Oldman. Because yeah, 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 yeah. Gary yeah. Oldman, Meryl Streep, but, yeah, and uh, Vince. Love that. Uh, not can't Vince Vaughn. Um, uh, Antonio Banderas Antonio, in it. Yeah. Can't wait to see that. Anyway. I digress. Vince Vaughn's in a new movie with Mel Gibson. That's why I was thinking of Vince Vaughn. I watched the trailer for that last night. Dragged would across you, concrete or something it's called. Would you work with Mel Gibson at this point if you were an actor and 
you know, you're established in your career and they say, hey, we got another vehicle. We got a project for you. Totally. Coast working totally. with Mel Gibson. <laughs> totally. Are you okay. kidding me? It's Mad Max, motherfucker. Mad Max. Oh, my God. Mad right. fucking Max. Fucking Max. All right. Like, I'm a big fan of Mel Gibson. Like, yeah, he's, he's obviously he's got a lot of psychological and emotional problems, but uh, yeah. he is he just act. one of the greats. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. look, you know, I don't, like, I don't like a lot of Australian actors, um, but Mel, oh, fucking badass, man. Just cool <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah. And he's good. Right. And even, like, uh, some, you know, in, in recent years, he did this thing, uh, The Gringo, a few years ago. That I watched, yeah, where I he's uh, some some white guy in Mexico. He's got to get money out and uh, gets caught up in gangs and whatever, and just has to kill a bunch of motherfuckers. And he was great. He's God. just he's great. He's just got so much bitter anger, angst in his yeah, eyes. Right. He's always having yeah. to channel. He's he's a, he's a terrific, terrific actor. Love Mel. Anyway, <laughs> let's let's move along. It's getting cheap. Right. So Xi Jinping's father was Xi Jongjun. Uh, he was one of the original communist revolutionary leaders going back to the 1920s. Ended up as a wow. senior party official under Zhu Enlai. Got uh-huh. imprisoned during Mao's cultural revolution in the late 60s. So for those who don't know, um, in the late sort of mid-60s to, the, to when he died in the mid-70s, Mao came back. He'd been on the sidelines for a while. After the Great Leap Forward had failed miserably, Mao, everyone went, look, look, Mao, we love you, but um, honestly, you obviously don't know what the fuck you're doing. So (laughs) go sit over here, um, you know, write write books and um, let let us actually run things, right, because you obviously don't know what you're doing. Thank you for the revolution. Um, (laughs) Appreciate it. We don't need you anymore. Um, right. and, uh, then he, he got worried that the, the capitalist influences were starting to make their way back into the thinking of the party leadership because they were going, oh, you know what, <clears throat> maybe this whole jump straight from feudalism to socialism was a bad idea. Maybe we should use the tools of the free market to build ourselves up first before we do that. And right. he was like, oh, fuck No. So he implemented what's known as the Cultural Revolution, had a lot of these uh, party leaders arrested, shut down a lot of stuff that was going on, cracked down on the economy again, started putting people into re-education camps, et cetera, et cetera. Terrible period in China, a um, lot, of, lot of drama, a lot of trauma. Uh, and uh, Xi Jinping's father, Xi Jinping, was caught up in that, spent nearly 10 years in prison, re-education camps. Damn. Um, after Mao right. died, uh, Xi Jinping got out, was rehabilitated, as they call it. Was was the, They took the stink off him. No, 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 he's a good commie. Don't worry about it. He's a good right. commie um, under Deng. Yeah. Now, you were talking about, uh, at the beginning of this episode, some of the experiments that Deng started doing. It was actually Xi that came up with the idea of the special economic zones in the late 70s. Um, I think there had been one experiment that Deng had authorised somewhere else. But in the late 70s, Xi Jinping was running, he was the military governor of Guangdong province, which is uh, on the mainland, it's near Macau and uh, near Hong Kong. And he was running it and he went to Deng and said, I need some money. Uh, I I need money to fix up my province. Deng said, don't have any money but I can give you favourable policies. And he said, well, what I'd like to do is turn Guangdong province into a a special economic zone where we invite some foreign investment from Macau and Hong Kong. You know, we're going to watch it, manage it carefully, let them come here with their money, but be very careful about what we let them do and not do with it. Deng said, go go forth, my son. You have my blessing. And that he had is the political will how, to do that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that is how it got started. So it was Xi Jinping's father that started the special economic zones. Wow. So okay. he was a he was again one of the going back to the twenties, original communist revolutionary leader with Mao. Um, senior party official all the way along after they won the uh, revolution, except for his 
period in prison during the Cultural Revolution when he was seen to be a little bit too progressive for Mao's liking. So um, that's Xi Jinping's stock. Very important to understand how he grew up and who his father was, I think. Tells you a lot about him. Bit like... Tiberius and and a bit like Tiberius and Augustus, you know. I think a big part of him wants to finish what his dad started. Yeah, I can see that. And and just I mean, how could you not want a little bit of payback? You want to be the one who's in charge because I think Ping, from what from what little I know, I think he's he can can be in power for quite some time. I think he was trying to get the limits lifted off, so maybe he can stay in power kind of pull a Putin, a Putin, if you will, but uh, maybe there's a little bit of payback in his uh, in his psyche. But just to give a little payback to, uh, excuse me, just to give a little book into what you were saying when it, when it comes to Deng Xiaoping, um, when China gets Hong Kong back in 1997 and they get Macau back from the Portuguese in 1999, Deng Xiaoping, you know, he, he helps create, or at least he gives political, political cover to the idea of one country, Two systems, which refers to the coexistence under one political authority of areas with different economic systems, you know, of communism and capitalism. So you're right. I think Deng Xiaoping came up with very few ideas on his own. But between desperation, at one point he's the de facto de facto leader of the country, and he just knows that they have to try something. He's willing to take this risk, and so he gives everybody else political cover to come up with this. That was his contribution. To their to their economic progress. And by the way, Xi Jinping is called by both the Economist and Forbes as the most powerful and influential person in the world right now. I can see that. I can see that. Now you mentioned uh, his position. He did manage to remove term limits for the president. He hasn't been appointed dictator for life as it's uh, somehow <laughs> has sometimes been positioned. But he's removed right. term limits for the president. He's mm-hmm. like, hey, if I'm doing a good job, I should be able to do a good job for as long as uh, you keep electing me to be the leader of the party. Doesn't yeah. mean that yeah. he's got the job for life. He can be removed right. by the party in theory. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, it's term limits are probably a good thing. Um, so it's usually a bad thing when term limits are removed. But... There have been times in history when you probably want term limits removed uh, because, like, Augustus did a good job. Augustus uh, did a much better job than the guys that came after him, so it was good that Augustus didn't have term limits. Anywho, a a benign dictator is a good thing. Whether or not you want to classify Xi Jinping as a benign dictator depends on how you get treated in China, I guess. Um, now, at the third, speaking of Xi, in the when he took over, um, he he, uh, what do you call it? Um, helmed the third plenum of the eighteenth Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in November of two thousand and thirteen, mm-hmm. where it was declared that. To comprehensively deepen reform, we must hold high the magnificent banner of socialism with Chinese characteristics. Take Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, Deng Xiaoping theory, the important three represents thought, and the scientific development view as guidance, persist in beliefs, concentrate a consensus, comprehensively plan matters, move forward in a coordinated manner, persist in the reform orientation of the socialism market economy, make stimulating social fairness and justice and enhancing the people's welfare into starting points and stopover points, further liberate Mm. thoughts, liberate and develop social productive forces, liberate and strengthen social vitality, firmly do away with systemic and mechanistic abuses in all areas, and strive to open up an even broader prospect for the undertaking of socialism with Chinese characteristics." Yeah. Went on to say, went on to say that the general objective of comprehensively deepening reform is perfecting and developing the system of socialism with Chinese characteristics and moving 
the modernization of the country's governance structure and governance capacity forward. We must pay even more attention to the systemic nature, general nature and coordinated nature of reform, accelerate the development of the socialist market economy, democratic politics, advanced culture, harmonious society and ecological civilization. Let all vitality in labor, knowledge, technology, management and capital compete and burst forth. Let all sources for the creation of social wealth fully gush out and let the fruits of development be extended to the whole body of the people in greater numbers and more fairly. Woo! So, pumped up. what do you think of all yeah. of that? There's a vision. There's a vision. Yeah. Now, it's better than you can I... sit there and yeah. snort and yeah. call bullshit on that and say that it's just words. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe it is, but uh, it's a pretty good vision. I like the vision. Yeah. So one of the things, uh, yeah, as far as explaining what they're trying to do, Deng Xiaoping, after Mao uh, Mao dies, he said Maoism has to be um, Maoism has to be reduced in the role of ideology when it comes to things like economics. He says that socialism does not mean shared poverty because if you ask the average American in the 1980s what communism was. You pretty much get an image, because you've seen it on all the music videos. Everybody's suffering. Everybody's miserable together. And so he's like saying, no, this, we can do more than this. And Deng Xiaoping also said, a policy should not be rejected outright simply because it's not associated with Mao. So he's like, you know, Mao didn't think and, and comment on everything. We have to not try new things. And the immediate, the first thing that I thought of was like for those people, and again, I'm related to some of them that say, if it's not in the Bible then it's not good, it's not right, and God doesn't want it. Obviously, that was written 2,000 years ago, but that's how some of these communists think, and that's that's how some of the Christians think, but he was willing to look outside of Mao's little red book. To be clear, you're not saying the communists think if it's not in the Bible, then it's not true. They're talking no, about just a comparison. Mao, Mao's little red book. If no, it's not in Mao. And I think... Yeah, there's a good point. So, you know, when I was on Facebook in the last couple of weeks and people are trying to debate me about this, they're saying, well, allowing capitalism uh, into China is not communism. It's, it's a loosening of communism. No, it's not. It's a loosening of Maoism. Yes. It's a loosening of Stalinism. It's not a loosening of communism because there is no defined uh, uh, program of what the journey to communism looks like. Okay, it's and there's mm-hmm. never been communism in China, as I explained in the last episode. In terms of a fully blown ec- socio-economic expression of communism, that's never existed. They're on the road to communism, the journey towards communism, and there's nothing hard and fast about what the steps are to get there. Mao tried, failed. Stalin tried, failed, and so Deng was like, "Okay, let's uh, be yeah. scientific Change about this." Out. Let's. Yeah. I like that they call, they talk about the scientific development view, scientific socialism. Let's experiment and see what works. There's a right. great old Chinese saying that I think both Mao and Deng applied, but Deng brought it back um, at this point in time, which was truth from facts. Ah, right. Like let's not get our truth from ideology. Yes. Let it, let's get our truth from facts. Let's experiment, see what works and what doesn't work. So according to the Chinese government, this is my point in all this section, is when people in the West say, well, they're capitalists. Well, you may have that view, but from the perspective of the Chinese government, it's actually a socialist market economy or socialism Mm -hmm. with Chinese characteristics. It's Marxism-Leninism adapted to Chinese conditions with scientific socialism as uh, the, the model for how they develop forward. And there's nothing aberrant about that. It's not, well, that's not true communism or that's not true socialism. Yes, it fucking is because the whole point (laughs) from Marx and Engels and and Lenin as well, who started this journey, is let's experiment with things and try and figure out what works. We have a view of where we want to get to one day, which is communism. But how do we get there is open to experimentation. So if, if you think you have this kind of... Um, third grade thinking level of uh, binary this is or this isn't communism no that sounds like third grade level work to me uh, <laughs> people need to realize that that's just wrong if 
people right. are telling you that they're just plain wrong. It's just a, they don't really understand what they're talking about. Now, Deng's theory, as you suggested, was that China, uh, when he took over, was still in the very, very primary stages of socialism due to its relative low levels of material wealth, and it needed to engage in economic growth before it could pursue a more mature or or egalitarian form of socialism, Mm -hmm. which would then one day lead to the communist society that was described in Marx and Engels. Here's a segment of a speech from Deng in 1984. What is socialism and what is Marxism? We were not quite clear about this in the past. Marxism attaches utmost importance to developing the productive forces. We have said that socialism is the primary stage of communism and that at the advanced stage, the principle of from each according to his ability and to each according to his needs will be applied. This calls for highly developed productive forces and an overwhelming abundance of material wealth. Therefore, the fundamental task for the socialist stage is to develop the productive forces. The superiority of the socialist system is demonstrated in the final analysis by faster and greater development of those forces than under the capitalist system. As they develop, the people's material and cultural life will constantly improve. One of the shortcomings after the founding of the People's Republic was that we didn't pay enough attention to developing the productive forces. Socialism means eliminating poverty. Pauperism is not socialism, still less communism. Now, I want to repeat one of the sections there. The superiority of the socialist system is demonstrated by faster and greater development of those forces than under the capitalist system. And as I said earlier... China did in 40 years after (laughs) Deng took over what it took America 240 years to do and took the United Kingdom 170 years to do. So Deng was right. Damn. Normally the best of of two or three different systems, you bring them together, and that's probably the best way because you're using the best of several different things, and that's just the way it's always been. Yeah, but again, it's important to understand that when you say bringing the best of the systems, what they're doing, what they have done anyway, is yeah. allow limited form oh, yeah. of free market economics and private ownership tightly controlled to achieve a certain mm-hmm. outcome, which is to build up their yeah. productive forces and create abundant yeah. material wealth in their country that they can then use to pull everyone out of poverty. And it fucking worked. Deng <laughs> got it right. Deng was a communist, and he got it right. Now, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels never proposed the immediate abolishment of private ownership. According to Engels' book, Principles of Communism, the proletariat can only abolish private ownership when the necessary conditions have been met. As I said before, the movement from feudalism to communism was supposed to be a slow, carefully managed, gradual evolution, a gradual process over a period of time. It wasn't supposed mm-hmm. to be you wake up one day and you go, right, Boom. we're going to abandon private ownership. Come see the, come see yeah. the oppression and tear it in the system. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it was supposed to be slow. Um, so when... China's allowing private ownership and people go, well, that's not communism. Well, no, it's not communism, but it's totally acceptable on the road to communism. It's important to understand. China's on the road to communism. They're not saying we have communism today. And and um, and I know we're probably going to get into this on the next episode or later on here, but the the next goal for China, and you probably ran across this, was made in China 2025, when they want to have certain other goals met. But of course, when you're outside of China, you might see that as a threat. But again, China's not doing anything different that other countries haven't done using their economic and political power to achieve certain means for, for security. Everybody does it. But that is seen mm. by as a threat by other countries. Sure, well, yeah, of course. Now, some people say, look, all of this stuff about socialist market economy and socialism with chi- Chinese characteristics is just talk. It's a smokescreen. Right. 
China's actually capitalists, they're being ruled by capitalists, and they might be right. I mean, it's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, how do you know what's really in the hearts and minds of these people? Maybe, though, Deng and Xi were serious. Um, you know, I think somebody on Facebook said to me, well, you know, all the wealth is being handed to the princes of the party. Right. Like, really? 850 million people have been pulled out of poverty. Are they all princes of the party? That's uh, <laughs> oh, no. They they cut they cut the poverty rate extreme poverty from eighty eighty eight percent down to zero point seven percent really, you're saying that all the wealth yeah. is going to the princes of the party now there are these eight hundred yeah. billionaires that you talked are probably princes of the party true, right but we don't but really still. know if these people is these people seriously gonna move towards socialism and communism or not even if they want to. Is it possible? Right. Once you allow for hundred million, a million millionaires and a thousand billionaires, uh, once those people are there, can you get rid of them again? I don't know that that's yeah, possible. That's, mm, yeah. But in a 2017 speech, she claimed that Beijing is blazing a new trail for other developing countries to achieve modernization and offers a new option for other countries and nations who want to speed up their development while still preserving their independence. Now, according to the Chinese Communist Party, Western talk about democracy uh, is simply a pretext for robbing poorer countries of their sovereignty and economic potential. Mm -hmm. Just as China needed a dictatorship of the proletariat in the form of the Communist Party to achieve this sort of extreme economic growth over the next 40 years. The thinking is that other countries may need it too. So because, you know, again, their right. concern is, and it's leg- it's legitimate, if you totally open up your country to the free market, which is what Western countries want you to do, then all this money pours yeah. in from richer countries. What do they do with that money? Well, they buy up the means of production, but they also are going to buy up the media. They're going to use the media to affect how people think about their current political leadership. They're also going to bribe politicians. They're going to bribe bribe cops. They're going to bribe the military. They're going to bribe juries, and they're going to bribe judges, which is what happens in the West. Uh, So... You can't say, well, that's that's paranoia. Well, hey, this yeah, happened in yeah. their countries before they lived through it. You know, go back to Cuba before Castro when it was basically a puppet state run by the Americans with Batista as their uh, puppet dictator. And there's dozens and mm-hmm. dozens of other examples where America has done this with their puppet dictators over the last 70, 80 years. Um so they, they know that it really happens. They know that it's how America works. So they're like, well, we can't allow that. And what China's saying is, well, we figured out a way to get the balance right, to allow oh. a little bit of this foreign money in but not let it corrupt the system. Now, they may be full of shit. Maybe the system is corrupted. We don't know. It's hard for me to tell. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not. Hasn't been corrupted. Right. I, I'm saying to me the jury's out. We have to see what happens next. Yeah, cause there's just so much you can't know about their economy based on their government because they keep everything, not everything, but they keep a lot of things hidden. But um, again, that's just another thing a state does to protect itself. It doesn't make it inherently evil just because they're communists doing it. And of course, even if it is their plan to continue along the road to socialism and communism, Maybe they can't pull it off. You know, as I've said before, maybe the Chinese wealthy elite won't want to give up their money and power. Who would? And according to the psychopath theory, most of the people who rise to these positions of wealth and power are probably psychopaths. And by definition, psychopaths don't give a fuck about anyone else except (laughs) themselves. But maybe the Chinese have a plan for this. Maybe they've thought this through and they figured out how to then remove the psychopaths from power. You know, pretty easy. You just roll in the army and go, you're gone, bye-bye, bye-bye. Right. And throw them, <laughs> throw them in jail. Give up yeah. your wealth or we fucking kill you. I mean, that's basically the only way to get rid of rich, wealthy psychopaths. I mean, history has shown us that's the... Unfortunately, they don't give it up willingly, so you right. have to have a, rev- a revolution. That's what revolutions are. They're the people overthrowing the rich psychopaths. 
But at least they are articulating a vision for a better future, as we said. And what is Americans' vision for the future? Well, outside of Bernie Sanders, uh, it's oh, just more of I the I know same. the answer. No, no. The answer is thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Yeah. It's America's vision. Now, look, I'm, I'm not an anti-capitalist. There's no doubt that unbridled capitalism has exploded the creative forces of the human race over the last couple of hundred years. But it's also mm-hmm. caused two world wars, the deaths of 100 million people from that. It's developed nuclear weapons, which has put the entire future of the species at risk for the last 70 years. It's destroyed the climate, probably, again, putting the entire species on the verge of extinction or, at best, massive, massive socioeconomic calamities within the next 50 years. Because it's unmanaged growth for growth's sake. There's no limiter mm-hmm. on it. Uh, it right. It's very hard to slow down and limit capitalism when it runs die. amok. Yeah. 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 And by the way, the real cause of the trade deficit, which I guess we'll get into in the next episode, but the real reason, the real cause of the trade deficit that the US has with China is capitalism. The, the drive to increase short-term profits regardless of the long-term consequences led American manufacturers and manufacturers from other countries as well, but we're talking about the US-China trade war, to um, you know, uh, offshore all of their manufacturing capability over the last 40 mm-hmm. years, which is predominantly what's led to the trade deficit. So if you know, want to point the finger at anyone for the trade deficit, don't point it at China you got to point it right. at America. It's America right. that created the trade deficit, not China. But anyway, we'll get that in we'll get into that in the next episode. We can do it a lot. Yeah. Yes. 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 When I go home, it comes out. Pedophile. Kicking ass. Oh, my beer. That's a power play, baby. Do me a solid. Let me try that again. In your head. I cry into my pillow.